Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And today we're talking about the light bulb, Henry Wachtel, who killed his mother. Karen Kay was a lot of things. Well, I think it was Karen Kay. I couldn't find any record of how she actually pronounced her name. I could easily see how that could be Karen. Or even Corinne. Yeah. But I'll call her Karen because I did see somewhere that that might be how she pronounced it. Okay. Anyway, Karen Kay was a lot of things. She'd grown up in Chicago, the youngest of four daughters the child of a blue-collar worker. Family meant a lot to her. She was sweet, goofy, supportive, and an aspiring writer. She enjoyed John Wayne films, The Three Stooges, and poetry by Langston Hughes. And also her favorite book was The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. It's a collection of linked stories about people fighting in the Vietnam conflict. I haven't read it, but it looks like an interesting book. The author creates a fictional character who bears his own name. The fictional Tim spends the afternoon reminiscing with one of his platoon members about Vietnam, remembering their friends and relating their personal stories regarding what happened to all of the soldiers after they returned home, if they returned home. The author artfully blends truth from his own lived experiences and fiction to create an insightful, thought-provoking tale about combat and the soldiers who must carry that with them for their lives should they survive it. It sounds like a very powerful book. Yeah, I'd never heard about it before, but it's on my reading list now. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> anyway, Karen loved to write, and she was pretty good at it. She set her sights on living in New York when she was quite young. She had a lot of plans for her life, and she was good at reaching her goals. She did move to New York, and she did exactly what she said she'd do. She became a writer. Good for her. Yeah. She'd written several episodes for America's Most Wanted, three books about film, and the screenplay for a late 1980s thriller called Call Me. Oh, I saw that movie. I wasn't really a fan. <laughs> Me neither. I think that show really didn't make any sense. Yeah, it would seem to be just a string of tropes. I know, right? But she did figure out how to get a story she'd written produced, which is kind of cool. For sure. But at some point, she decided to change things up a bit. She became an instructor at the Pratt Institute, which is a private university, and she started teaching writing classes at the LaGuardia High School for Performing Arts as a visiting teacher. Oh, that's a pretty posh school, isn't it? I think Madonna's daughter, uh, Lourdes, attended there. And Jonathan Latham, maybe? Yeah. Fortune of Solitude, Jonathan Latham, right? Exactly. Yeah, you're right. That's such a good book. And yes, it is a very elite school. If you're old enough to remember the show Fame, LaGuardia High School is the setting for that show. Oh, I remember Fame, but I didn't know that. That's really cool. 
But anyway, why did she start teaching high school after having produced a movie? I'm not sure, but I'm assuming it was after Call Me, which was in 1988. Her son Henry was born in early 1993. He was born on one of her sister's birthdays, and she named him for her own father. Henry was the sun, the moon, and the stars in her life. A lot of women who prioritize family undergo career adjustments after they have a baby. So it could have been that, or it could have been some other reason. I don't know for sure. But I do know that now that Henry was growing up, Karen continued to succeed. She was in the midst of working on a feature film called Service at the time of her death. She'd written those three books. Ironically, all of them were about feminism in film. Women in the Cinema, a critical anthology, Myrna Loy, and besides, Berman. She was also the first person to interview Dorothy Arsner. Oh, who's that? She was the first Hollywood director who was female. Wow, that's a lot of accomplishments. Yeah, she was very accomplished. She did a lot in her lifetime. Anyway, she was a well loved teacher, like I said, at LaGuardia High. Her students said that she inspired them. She made Herculean efforts to make their dreams come true. And she's reported to have created a safe place for students to explore their feelings through writing in her classroom. Well, mostly safe. She was reported to have a bit of a problem with boundaries. Oh, no. Yeah, according to the New York Post, she would overshare with her students, sometimes crying and asking them to tell her she was a good mother. But by every student report, and there were a lot on ratemyteacher.com, she was a good teacher. One review said, and this is a quote, she cared so much about her students, even students who were cruel to her and resistant to work. She really believed that no matter who we were, we were smart and had something to say. She really believed in all of us. Oh, that's really nice. It seems to say a lot about how she probably was even raising her own son, Henry. I know. The kids loved her and they knew that things weren't perfect at home because she'd also show up at school with injuries like black eyes. My goodness. Yeah, blaming herself for instigating Henry's violence and insisting that Henry was a very good boy. This sounds a lot like Jesse Winnick's mom. Jesse from episode 33? You're right. Except Karen is alleged to have engaged in fights with Henry, including screaming, throwing furniture, stuff like that. And Henry in New York, had a very different life than Jesse's in California. Henry and his mother lived together on West 55th Street. Oh, so all the way in Hell's Kitchen? Technically speaking, yeah, 55th Street. But they seemed to be about as close to the action in Hell's Kitchen as they were to the Museum of Modern Art, walking distance to both. And at the bottom corner of Central Park, that was within a couple blocks of their home. So kind of in that buffer zone as far as tourists go. Mm -hmm. But it seems like a pretty good location. It does. Was their place nice? It seemed to be by New York standards. They had an 800 square foot two bedroom place with a fairly decent view of the city on the 10th floor. Okay. I haven't heard anything about his dad so far though. Does he not have a father involved in his life? Well... All the evidence does point to Henry's dad being present. Henry's dad was Edward Anthony Wachtel, Ed. He seemed to have been quite involved in the film industry himself. He didn't seem to be as accomplished in the real world as Karen, 
He was an associate professor at Fordham University. He offered a course there on filming where the students apparently watched a curated list of films and supposedly learned how to use a host of filming equipment. The coursework culminated in the making of a student film, or at least a film short, to demonstrate and practice their newly acquired skills. Ooh, that sounds like a very interesting class. Reviews of the course indicate it was not. Comments on RateMyProfessors.com indicate this was one of those classes that students, especially female students, just endured. Here's the comment from the most recent rating in 2017. Absolutely sexist and will tear apart any opinion that isn't his own. Watched him ridicule a girl in class for just stating that she appreciated seeing a strong female lead in one of the films he required. He is constantly asking ladies about chick flicks and saying they can't appreciate the good masculine movie he shows. Oh, that's gross. Yeah, but it also tells you a little bit about why he's attracted to Karen. She loved John Wayne films, and she was into the movie industry like him. Yeah, um, but I think not being able to appreciate anything feminine shows an imbalance in a person. Yes. Mm -hmm. Anyway... Karen and Ed applied for a marriage license in 1992 and in 1993, the year Henry was born. The New York Times reported they divorced in 1998, so maybe they finally got married, but other sources say they never married. I tried to hunt down a record of divorce for them, but it was nowhere to be found. Oh, that's so, so interesting. Yeah, so I'm not sure if they ever married or not. Either way, they'd called it quits when Henry was still an infant, but Ed stayed involved in Henry's life. Karen was clearly the caretaker throughout Henry's life. Hmm. So what about Henry himself? What was he like overall? Well, Karen had told her class, remember, that Henry was a good boy. When it came to good boys, Henry was not one of them. Nineteen-year-old Henry already had a very checkered past. According to the New York Times, he'd been in and out of therapy since he was 12 years old, where he would confess to his therapist that he enjoyed fighting and had violent thoughts about his mother and others. This wasn't really a surprise to people who knew him. In 2005, 12-year-old Henry was already smoking, not just cigarettes, and drinking. He'd confessed that he was excited to keep dabbling in drugs, alcohol, and sex, and that he was plotting the perfect murder. His victim of choice was an unnamed elderly woman. His therapist was very concerned about his, quote, rage, anger, entitlement, and opposition to authority, unquote. That's a very troubled boy. Especially at 12 years old. Yeah. And he also noted that Henry had an, this is a quote too, intense and consuming anger toward both of his parents and especially hated them when they tried to set limits or tell him what to do. Mm, that's pretty much what parents do with a 12-year-old. <laughs> you're teaching them boundaries, and you're setting limits and telling them what to do every day. That's the whole job. Exactly right, but it does get worse here. In 2007, when he was 14 years old, Henry wasn't getting along with either of his parents. Of course, his relationship was worse between him and his mother because she was his primary caretaker. The custodial parent is often the one who gets the brunt of a child's angst. Henry would get physical with her even back then. Wow, that's really scary. 
14-year-old is so young to be so violent. Yeah. And at one point, he took one of her possessions, set it on fire, and threw it out the window. That's outrageous behavior. Mm -hmm. How was he getting away with all this? I'm not sure, but that's not all he did. According to Justia, this middle schooler had also rolled a smoke bomb into an art gallery and killed birds with his BB gun. I don't know, other than therapy, what the parents were doing or trying to do to discipline him. And still it got worse. It's terrible. By the time he was a freshman in high school, so now he's, what, 16 years old, maybe Mm -hmm. tops? Well, he was more high school than high school. It's a bad dad joke. (laughs) But a good one, right? Yes, a little bit. (laughs) But Henry was now drinking and using drugs daily. On the weekends, he would party to blackout. Like he was smoking pot every day? He was doing much more than marijuana at this point. He was dropping acid and injecting Special K. (laughs) Why would you inject cereal? Why not just eat it? I don't think you get the fiber benefits injected. (laughs) Well, Special K is ketamine. It's a drug. (laughs) This kid. But how is he affording all of these drugs as a freshman in high school? That's an excellent question and one I can't answer for you. But ketamine is a bit of a nasty drug. It was around in the 70s, but it didn't really make a big splash until the 90s during the rave scene. It induces a state of sedation. Most people describe a disassociative state, if they can remember anything at all, because it leaves people with amnesia, which is why it also became a very popular date rape drug. Wow, I'm so glad I don't know anything about ketamine. It doesn't sound very special at all. (laughs) Nope. Is this the one that leaves you really thirsty? I know there was a rave drug that made you really thirsty. Oh, that's ecstasy, also known as MDMA or Molly. Well, sort of. People use the terms interchangeably, but, well, okay. MDMA is, and I'll probably murder this word, methylendioxymethamphetamine in its pure powder or crystallized form. When it first became popular as a recreational drug, It was pressed into tablets and called ecstasy, but they cut it with really bad stuff so they could make a larger profit as they turned it into easy-to-sell-and-carry tablets. But pretty soon it was so impure that people started staying away from it. They moved on to alternative drugs. And then came Molly. Molly was supposedly more pure and was typically a powder that was snorted. It's often used alongside LSD, alcohol, and marijuana to enhance the experience. But ketamine, MDMA, LSD, and a couple of other drugs, including rohypnol, were kind of the happening drugs at the time. Isn't rohypnol the roofie, the date rape drug? Uh Uh-huh, it is. None of these sound very safe. I don't think anyone knowingly taking them was really thinking about safety. I guess that's fair. Yeah. Anyway, it's fairly certain that Henry was into the rave scene. Henry admitted to using acid, ketamine, Xanax, cocaine, Oxycontin, Percocet, PCP mushrooms, bath salts, almost anything you can name. He was into it. He spent most of his weekends in blackout mode. That's a lot for a high schooler. A lot, a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot for anyone, but uh, this is really shocking behavior for someone who's still in high school. Yeah, for a kid. In June of 2008, after using cocaine, Henry had his first seizure. 
which happens a lot with kids who do drugs at really young ages. Mm-hmm. It's got to mess up your nervous system. Mm-hmm. He was taken to the emergency room where he was released. The seizure, according to the ER doctor, was attributed to his cocaine use. So he gave himself seizures. Yeah, like I said, this happens a lot when kids start drugs really young. But Henry didn't take this incident as a warning. In fact, he headed to a neurologist with his dad right after this to get himself some Adderall for his ADHD. That seems like the perfect solution. Let's add more drugs to this. Yeah, it doesn't sound like the parents took his drug use seriously at all. Yeah, that's very surprising. Mm -hmm. The next year turned out to be a fairly angry one for Henry. He was constantly fighting with his mom and telling his therapist he was exhibiting great self-control by not hitting her harder. He got into a shoving match with his dad, and he apparently even abused his girlfriend. At 16 years old, he was discussing his increasing interest in violent and sadistic acts against his family, friends, and even himself. And he continued using any drugs he could get his hands on. That's really scary. I'm surprised that he was not taken inpatient or sent to military school or something. Usually parents kind of reach the end of their rope at some point. Oh, and we're getting there. And I think his parents may have had a little bit of a long rope just based on who they were. Maybe. Yeah. So Henry found himself an outpatient at Phoenix House. So there you go. Okay, there's the rope. Uh-huh. This is a drug rehab facility at about this time. He self-reported he was clean for three months despite his continuing use of alcohol and marijuana. He didn't really think these counted as drugs. And he told his therapist he could continue using any drug he chose because they really didn't affect him much. Wow. Complete and total lack of insight there. I think so, too. And that will become his downfall, as you'll see. Phoenix House must have been beside themselves in trying to treat him. Of course, they were trying to get him to clean up his act, but they were giving him drugs, too, both sedatives and stimulants, which seemed to have simply enhanced his illegal drug use. Like it made his drugs work better or something? Well, he started seeing that he could mix different drugs with his own drugs. Um. And, you know, if you use a pill to stop using a pill, the message to the kid is that the pill's the answer, right? I guess. Yeah. Well, Henry advised them he didn't need treatment. He was only coming here for treatment because his parents made him go. How did that work out for him? Obviously not well. He had his second seizure in April or May of 2010 while um, getting busy with his girlfriend, which must have scared her to death. I'm sure. It probably scared both of them. Yeah, probably. Um, it was probably a bit awkward there, too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's only 17 years old. Yeah, he's still pretty young. Mm-hmm. A couple of months later, he was in the shower at his dad's house when he had another seizure. This one was very bad. It lasted for about half an hour, and he ended up in the ER confused about what had happened with a broken nose. Wow, seriously? Indeed. This time, he wound up getting diagnosed with epilepsy, and they prescribed Keppra, an anticonvulsant. It was about this time, April of 2010, that he walked away from Phoenix House and decided those idiots didn't know what they were talking about. There was no reason in the world to not do drugs. It was all just people trying to control him. 
and he started smoking and injecting heroin. According to Henry, 2010 was a year of numb. He didn't care about anything, started burning himself, threatened suicide a lot, would drink to blackout, which took a lot of alcohol at this point, and went after his mother in a drunken rage one day, threatening her and screaming stuff like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to choke you. Oh, my goodness. His mom must have been so scared. Um, yeah, I think so. But the record also suggests that this was a mutually abusive relationship. Like I said before, Karen would physically fight back. But yes, I do think it all terrified her. I mean, at a certain point, if he's chasing you and trying to choke you, you're going to have to fight back? Well, I agree, but throw furniture? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I think that reactive abuse shows up in a lot of different ways. True. So, and it's hard in this case as well because it's just the two of them in the house. So whose reports do we have? In a His. Very, and, well, the neighbors, actually. Okay. The neighbors were talking about the huge rowels that would go on. Okay. So we know they fought a lot. We don't know who started it or what happened, but we know it was loud. Right. Okay. Well, I think that people need to be more careful when someone says, I'm going to kill you. They seem to mean it. Um, when you look at like cycles of abuse, someone who chokes you or threatens to choke you is probably going to kill you. Yeah. So I wish she had taken him more seriously. Me too. But this story is a little bit odd. So let's keep going. Okay. What was Karen saying about this? Was she getting therapy? I don't think she was getting therapy, but she lived in New York. It was that time in our history where everyone had a therapist. It was a cool thing to do. Yeah. She was a filmmaker, so most likely, but I don't have a record of one. She needed a better one if she had one. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but she was out there telling all of her friends that Henry was struggling with anger issues and that she was very worried about him. And the neighbors indicate that this mother-son pair were in a very unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship based on her description. Like I said, the neighbors had discussed the loud furniture throwing duo with the doorman. Many residents of the building were confused and frightened by what they heard coming out of the Wachtell apartment, or the K apartment, depending on who they were friends with. And they were really confused by their relationship, because most of the time, Henry appeared to be a protective, doting son who loved his mother dearly. It was difficult to reconcile the contrasting glimpses they got into this family, and his drug use continued to escalate. His psychologist began making arrangements to put him in inpatient treatment, warning his parents to call 911 if things got out of hand. I wonder what his parents would have considered out of hand at this point. I know, and call 911 while someone's beating on you? Mm-hmm. Sometimes therapists make me shake my head. It's not a very practical safety plan, I'll say that. No, that and run away. <laughs> well, it's... Not when you have a murderous child in your household. Yeah, where are you supposed to run to? Well, you're not going to get out that door. Yeah. They're younger, stronger, faster. Yeah, especially at 17, 18. Mm -hmm. Anyway, things did get out of hand. And his parents did call 911. And Henry was rushed to the emergency room, only to be released again without treatment. Well, that makes sense. It's clear the kid is doing copious amounts of drug, and emergency departments see this all the time. 
I'm betting they just held on to him until he sobered up and then released him. It's what they usually do. Yeah, that is really common. But his parents were mad about it, and they used this as an excuse to keep Henry from seeing this psychologist any longer. So the specter of an impatient mental ward disappeared. Which, I don't know, it seems like he needed that. I agree. Anyway, Henry continued to have seizures and also continued in his drug use. But he was now graduated from high school, well, a local alternative school, and his parents wanted him in college. He didn't really have the grades nor really the interest in this traditional trajectory, but his dad worked at Fordham, so he began attending school there in the continuing education department while he continued living with his mom. So he wasn't a matriculated student, though? No, he wasn't. But he was in school, and success in continuing ed could easily lead to an acceptance into Fordham in the future. So his parents were trying. Yeah, I think the inpatient would have been smarter, though. I completely agree. It was also in 2011 that Henry got a taste of that film industry in which both of his parents had been involved. But unlike his parents, he wasn't working behind the cameras. He was in front of them for a short film. And his co-star was none other than a very young ingenue, Julia Garner. What? Julia Garner from Ozarks? Mm-hmm. And from Inventing Anna? Uh-huh. She's amazing. She is amazing. I really love her. But that short film, Our Time, despite being shown at the Cannes Film Festival, was rather unremarkable. It was produced by a student attending Columbia University, and it's about aimless kids who hang out in Central Park. If not for living in New York, they would have simply been mall rats, spoiled, self-involved, aimless characters. I guess I'm not a fan of the short. I'm a big fan, though, of Julia Garner. Me too. Anyway, Henry continued to have seizures, and those seizures seemed to be connected to his massive drug use. He didn't like having seizures, but Henry wasn't willing to give up his drugs, his erratic lifestyle, or his anger. The days melted together in a haze, and 2011 turned into 2012, while Henry continued to abuse his drugs, his mother, and really his life in general. He would often express his love for his mother, but neighbors say he was always screaming at her, ignoring her entreaties to get his life together and partying until the sun came up. At one point after the murder, he would tell his therapist, and this is a quote, There is nothing better than getting off of the bus in New York City at 5 a.m., coming home from a good party. Wow, that is a lot of life experience. Mm-hmm. He's really young. Mm-hmm. But that probably describes his life habit of sleeping away most of the day and partying through the night. He was most assuredly not a morning person, and he didn't like taking his epilepsy medications, unless he was using them to augment his efforts to get high with other drugs. His mother found him a new psychologist who was seeing him for school difficulties, anxiety, poor sleep habits, and family conflict, according to the psychologist's notes. Wow, not for drug misuse or substance use disorder? Apparently not. But that makes sense, sort of, because Henry didn't see his drug use as a problem. And they lied to the psychologist, telling him that Henry had successfully completed drug treatment 
and only drink alcohol intermittently. Well, that's a really poor choice. I mean, you're coming to this person asking for help and they don't have the whole story? Well, it's almost like they didn't think his drugs were a problem. Yeah, maybe they were just deluding themselves, but... Or maybe, yeah. How are you going to get better? I mean, sleep issues and anxiety, maybe stop taking cocaine. Right, right. I know. His treatment did suffer for it, of course, and he spent his therapy sessions blaming his mom for his angry outbursts and his violence. He complained that his mother was too controlling. Mm, sir, too controlling? I'm not seeing where anyone had tried to control this kid very much, ever. How did the psychologist not see that? I don't know. Um, Henry wasn't really one to show up for his appointments, though, on the regular. And when he did show, he was usually late, so maybe they never really got a decent start at therapy. That makes sense. Anyway, in December of 2011, Henry and his mother both reported he was more irritable, ignoring how irritable he had been since his release from Phoenix House. They'd upped his Keppra to twice the recommended daily dose instead of considering the fact that Henry often used his Keppra to enhance his highs from all of his other drugs while refusing to cooperate and take the Keppra as prescribed. Seizure management doesn't really work if you take your drugs only sometimes and you don't sleep and you mostly do other drugs. Mm-hmm. That's exactly where the problems were coming from. Mm-hmm. The neighbors continued saying they could hear that yelling, they could hear the furniture throwing, but it appeared Karen was always trying to do her best in caring for her son. And on March 29th, he turned 19 years old. According to the New York Times, Henry and his mom spent a peaceful evening together on the night of April 9th, about a week and a half after his 19th birthday. They'd watched Titanic and The Hunger Games together. But then Henry was up all night doing amphetamines, Adderall, and even an extra dose of his Keppra just to keep things going. He didn't fall into bed until 6.30 a.m. He says when his mom woke him up, he was feeling good about the psych test he was scheduled to take that morning, which seems odd since continuing ed classes don't usually have tests. Yeah, and because he'd been up all night not studying. Exactly. He downed his seizure medication with his morning cup of coffee shortly before his seizure began. That's all he says he recalls. The next thing he remembered after his coffee was this, and it's a quote. I woke up on the kitchen floor to the cops picking me up and my mother carried out on a stretcher. Wait, what? Yeah, that's it. That's the entire story, according to Henry. That does not seem like a very good story. Mm -hmm. And everyone just believes that? They didn't have to. There was a witness who was able to corroborate Henry's story. Oh, how? Well, on April 10th, 2012... 63-year-old Karen had called 911 at 9.30 a.m., deeply concerned about her son. He'd had seizures for a couple of years, so she knew what to expect, but this one was different. He seemed to be stuck in the postical stage, the end of a seizure that begins when a seizure subsides and is characterized by disorienting symptoms, such as confusion and drowsiness. 
that state was going overly long and she was starting to worry he would never come out of it. Her voice of concern heightened on that 911 call as its focus changed. She was no longer afraid for his life because she was too busy defending her own life. Help! Help! He's attacking me! Help! He's coming after me! The dispatcher was left to listen to the sounds of Karen being beaten. Moments later, the dispatcher heard Henry crying out, Mommy! Mommy! Please don't die! He'd hit her more than 100 times, fracturing her skull, breaking her ribs, and causing extensive internal bleeding as per Cornell's Will Hospital. It's horrible. Yeah. According to court records, the emergency responders arrived to find a wild-eyed, disoriented young man who was covered in blood. As they prepared to transport his unconscious mother from the scene, Henry would alternate his story. Sometimes he would say he didn't know what happened, and then he would tell the investigator it was a mistake. With the help of an attorney, Henry had settled on one story by April 11th. His body had killed his mother, but he had not. Wow. Whatever, yeah, whatever had happened that day had happened while he was in the throes of epilepsy, and he was confident he would not be held responsible. When he'd beaten his mother, he was neither fully conscious nor unconscious. He could not possibly be guilty of murder in any degree since, you know, he was unable to comprehend that he was doing something wrong. That seems hard to believe, given his character up to this point. Exactly. I mean, people do things in post-dictal states, but not usually something this extensive. Mm-hmm. And I would be not questioning as much, except for he's had fantasies about murdering someone since he was 12. And getting away with it. Yeah. So that's exactly what I thought. Karen was buried in a private service. Her students were beyond sad that they were excluded from honoring her life one last time, but they respected the family's privacy. That's very sad. So, what happened next? Well, Henry was arraigned the next day. He walked into court rather nonchalantly, not a bit bothered or upset. But by the time court started, he was on. He sobbed and he covered his mouth with his hand and carried on in a rather surprising way, considering how he'd entered the courtroom. Hmm. Yeah, he worked really hard to look sympathetic to the court. And we'll leave a picture at Parasite.com if our listeners want to see a dramatized version of remorse. That seems harsh. Are you sure he wasn't actually filled with remorse in the moment? I know it sounds harsh, but let's listen to the rest of Henry's story, and I think you'll be agreeing with me. Okay. So Henry was charged with second-degree murder, and he was sent back to jail to await trial. Well, kind of. Henry's attorney had immediately run with a Henry didn't kill his mother, his body did defense, which sounds really dramatic and exciting, right? Mm-hmm. His attorney wanted Henry to avoid prison altogether in the long run, and he thought that he should be sent to a residential treatment center instead. Oh. Which again makes me think this all could have been avoided possibly if he'd just been inpatient when his first psychiatrist had said he should be. Exactly. Which, you know, neither here nor there, you can't 
go back, but we'll change that. Yeah. But so what happened next was Henry was ordered to be confined to Kirby Forensic Psychiatric Center, which is a secure psychiatric facility where they could do a medical evaluation in anticipation of an upcoming trial. Okay. The doctors at Kirby did not find him to be psychotic or suicidal or remorseful. Predictably. Mm-hmm. But they did find him to be churlish and difficult. Also predictably. <laughs> mm-hmm. As a matter of course, they sent him along to the Bellevue Hospital's jail ward for his psychiatric evaluation after they were finished doing their part. And all of this was just the standard procedure. Okay. So his attorney also requested that wherever Henry was, they would like him to have his own room. (laughs) Yeah. um, He said it was because Henry's seizures occurred randomly and they worried that he could inadvertently put others at risk in the jail should postictal violence occur while he was awaiting trial. Which just sounds like every parent in the world. Can he have his own room? It does. It sounds a little bit like he's still spoiled, and even they, in jail. And they think it's summer camp. Yeah. I mean, I see what that attorney's doing. He's hoping to establish right off the bat that Henry's not culpable for his actions. And he's hoping to get Henry a stint in a mental ward rather than a prison in the long term. Which is rather common, but it's not always the wisest move. You're correct. We talked about this a little bit before, but the strength of being sent to a mental facility is that you don't have a sentence. Mm -hmm. As soon as you're cured, you can be released. But then the weakness of being sent to a mental facility is that you don't have a sentence, (laughs) as Henry's about to discover. Because not having a sentence means that if you refuse to improve, you don't get released. And... That can be a downside if you don't actually want to put in the work. True. But Henry's desire to stay out of prison became the focus of his attorney, and they went to work. On October 6, 2014, in a plea agreement supported by both the prosecution and the defense, Henry's plea of not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect was accepted by the court. When questioned, he immediately again turned on the tears and explained to the judge, Quote, I have no memory of the events immediately surrounding the death of my mother, unquote. Despite his proclaimed lack of memory, Henry did not insist he was innocent or deny committing the murder. In fact, he said, quote, I am convinced that I physically caused my mother's death, unquote. I can't imagine having to live with that knowledge. I know, you would think it would weigh so heavy on your heart, right? Mm-hmm. But Henry, as you will see, didn't really have a problem living with it. Wow. So now that his plea of not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect has been accepted, is he just going to go live with his dad? No, it doesn't really work that way. Because of the by reason of mental disease or defect part of his plea, he is now considered committed. So he's a ward of the court, and the court is in charge of his care and treatment until he is no longer deemed a danger to society and himself. So the only way for him to be released is if, after an instant hearing is conducted, the judge deems him to no longer be a danger to himself or others. Oh, so an involuntary commitment. Kind of, but it's even more than that. So let's take it back to the basics. First, I need to say that like many rules and laws, commitment laws are generally similar, but vary state by state. Okay. Commitments generally fall into two categories. You have voluntary commitment and involuntary commitment. A voluntary commitment is when a person is concerned about their mental health 
and chooses to take a short stay in a mental hospital to try and get better. When I hear that someone has checked themselves into a mental hospital, that's the voluntary commitment, right? That's right. So that might happen because this person has been in a mental hospital before and is still cognizant enough to recognize the signs that they aren't doing well. Okay. But it could also be at the suggestion of a therapist who is worried about them. It's completely fair for a therapist to say, you know, I don't think you're doing so well. Do you want to check yourself in for some help? In some cases, the person takes a little time out and is back and ready to deal with life, sometimes as short as a week. Mm. But then sometimes, once voluntarily committed, the staff says, mm, this is worse than we thought, this is going to take some time, and they might be held longer than they wished to stay. Oh, so like against their will. Yes. But now there's a second type of commitment, which is involuntary commitment, and that has to be a judicial action. But it's a little complicated because a lot of people who are committed involuntarily aren't criminals. They haven't done anything illegal. They are just in a really bad place in the throes of a mental health crisis. Mm. So those would be called non-criminal involuntary commitments. Okay. They don't go to court like someone who has broken the law, but they do have due process rights. So they get a hearing in front of a judge or a panel of judges who listens to some evidence and then determines if the person should be deemed a danger to others or themselves. Oh, okay. So they're not having a hearing about the bad or wrong things they did just about whether they can govern themselves mm -hmm. safely. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that can happen, you know, if someone's behaving really erratically. It can happen if someone is suicidal. Mm -hmm. It can happen in a lot of circumstances. Okay. But that hearing is not to say, oh, they've done something wrong or bad. It's just to say, we, do they lose their right to decide not to go to the hospital? Okay. Um, and those are called commitment hearings, dangerousness hearings, instant hearings, or really a host of other names, but they're usually held inside the mental health facility. Okay. But then there are okay. other commitments, like Henry's, where there is a crime involved, and they are adjudicated in a court of law because this person broke the law, but they may not have understood they were breaking the law because they were momentarily dispossessed. There are a couple of ways that states can determine this. That is the criminal involuntary commitment, and just like anyone else who has been committed, the person, or in this case Henry, won't be released from the court's custody, the commitment, until the judge deems him no longer a threat to himself and society. So Henry has a ways to go before he'll be set free, but he wasn't going to prison. Okay. So um, I don't know if you've ever seen the failed successfully meme, but it kind of feels like that's what he's done here. <laughs> yes. So Henry's father wanted to be the one to take him to Aspen Hills, the treatment facility, which the judge had ordered him to. Mm -hmm. And the judge did allow that, but they made him post a $100,000 bond and he had strict instructions to go right there. So they had a mental health professional in court ready to ensure those orders were being followed. I can see that. I think the parent would consider absconding with the child and running away. You would hope not considering that he just murdered the other one, but we've seen worse, right? Right. <laughs> So, Henry would be required to live in a secure treatment facility until the judge believed he had received adequate treatment and had made adequate progress in improving his mental defect after killing his mother. He would not be released until he could convince the court he could no longer be deemed a danger to society or himself. And Henry was convinced this would be a short stint. 
I don't think so. Given his mental health history, I don't either. He felt, though, that the only reason he'd killed his mother was the epileptic fit, which was over and, you know, theoretically treated. Okay. Yeah. So, like most betting people who were listening to their defense attorney, he believed he would be released at his first judicial review. That's the instant hearing. Okay. His attorney announced to the media that Henry would not be treated for being a danger to the public or himself, but that he would enter a residential treatment center that would help him cope with the trauma of knowing that he had caused his beloved mother's death. He made sure the media was aware that both the prosecutor and defense had agreed to this plea deal, saying although Henry's body had killed Karen Kay, Henry had not technically murdered her, no mentrea. Is that true? He'd only be treated for the trauma of knowing he'd caused his mother's death? (laughs) Well, you have forgotten the first cardinal rule of not listening to what the defense attorney has to say when the person gets convicted. (laughs) They had to put a good spin on it. But, no. He would not be treated for trauma. He was being treated for his mental disorders, his polysubstance drug misuse, and epilepsy, which together had resulted in the death of his mother. Right. Yeah. He'd admitted to the killing of his mother, but he wasn't off the hook for the treatment that would address why she was killed. Smart. Yeah, which is difficult because these are exactly the treatments he had resisted in the past. And I think that's where he's going to be in trouble. Yeah, it causes a lot of trouble for him. In our next episode, we will describe Henry's experiences in the mental health system and why he remains in that system still today. We would like to thank the New York Post, Legal.com, the New York Times, the New York Daily News, Crime Reads, The Daily Mail, Justia, RateMyProfessors.com, DNAInfo.com, RateMyTeachers.com, The Fordham Ram, The Gothamist, Agnes Film, and The Buffalo News for the information and pictures we used in telling this story. And we'd also like to thank Jade Brown for the music. She does such beautiful work. Yes. And most of all, We'd like to thank you, our listeners. Your support means the world to us. Absolutely. And this has been the Parasite Podcast. And remember, always sleep with one eye open. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. (laughs) 